you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Who exactly are perspicacity and perspicuity? And why are they on our podcast today? What would make an insurance claims investigator participate in Renaissance fairs? If the devil is in the details, why are they so important? What can cause a classroom full of budding mathematicians gape in amazement? Stay tuned for the answers in today's podcast. Hey there, Innovation Nation. We have a very full podcast for you today, but I'd like to ask for your help first. If you listen regularly to our podcast, I'd like to convince you to recommend it to a friend. A teacher I know recently told me she loves the podcast and listens to it during her workout routine. I'm probably not going to add in high-voltage music for those of you working out to the podcast, but it did get me to thinking. We made a short climb to the top of the iTunes charts um, in our category, Educational Technology, in the late fall. And I wouldn't care about ratings except that higher ratings make it easier for new listeners to find our life-changing podcast. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag just yet. But we're interviewing an educational superstar this week, and we have some other great guests lined up for the next couple of weeks. Now, this superstar I'm talking about isn't going to be on this week's podcast. He's going to be on in a couple of weeks. But I'd like more teachers and parents to have the opportunity to get this great content. And I know that you're out there faithfully downloading our episodes every week because I get the stats. So this week, go share the podcast with 10 of your closest friends that you know will love the podcast just like you do. Then head over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. The ratings and reviews help us rise in the rankings along with the subscriptions. So help other teachers and parents find the podcast by telling them and by helping us get more visibility in iTunes and on Stitcher. I don't want to leave out our Stitcher listeners. So why all the fuss about spreading the word? Two words. World change. And speaking of world change, it's time we get back to the podcast. On the show today, we have an investigator who pries into the business of large corporations. Now, it's not exactly what you might think, but I'll let Mark tell you more about what he does. So our guest this afternoon is Mark Hopla, and he describes what he does as an investigator for corporate compliance and fraud claims. Uh, He also describes himself as a communicator, uh, taking those facts and interpreting them uh, into a way that those who have to make decisions can actually make intelligent decisions. And he's been doing this for quite a while in the insurance industry. Uh, Mark also has another side to what he enjoys doing. He has been involved in Renaissance fairs now for quite some time. Uh, Mark, tell us a little more about yourself. Well, it's I think as we were talking before, it's hard to put a label on what I've done in the past that I'd be completely comfortable with because I think there are so many different interests, so many different things that I've done. And I think it's the same for everybody, but too often we we have a tendency to just put the label that will fit on a name tag 
I, I really have, through my career, been very um, fortunate to be exposed to a lot of opportunities, to a lot of circumstances connected with insurance and reinsurance, um, which is a whole financial world that I never dreamed of when I was originally in school. Kind of a funny thing, we had the um, manager of the apartment building where we were living that was a headhunter. You know, that's all he did was trying to find jobs for people. And at the time, my college job, I was managing a B. Dalton bookstore. And he said, oh, I can get you something better than that. And okay, why not? I got into a management trainee position with Safeco Insurance, learning all the, the lines. They had a terrific claim school, learning all the different lines of insurance from property, casualty, work comp, you name it. And it was a good fit. I, I just really liked it. And since then, I've transitioned through a number of different things in the industry. But at the end of the day, been glad that I've had all of these various exposures to things because it has made it possible for me to be successful and be interested in my job, which is so important. I think too often people, they punch a clock and they think of nothing more than going home. Work should be part of your life. It shouldn't be your life and it shouldn't be something you try to avoid. I've, I've been very fortunate in my past with that. So tell us a little bit about your college experience and how you think that prepared you for what you ultimately ended up doing. If I back up a little bit beyond that, um, when I was in junior high, they had a program where you got to go to the go to city hall, and you would each get assigned one of the main jobs of the city. And I, for some reason, wound up a city attorney. <laughs> and <laughs> so in the early days, my thought was, well, I was going to be an attorney. That's what I absolutely wanted to do. The college that I went to, California Lutheran University at the time, they did not have a pre-law program, but they either had English or political science. I was much more interested on the English side of things because I was a voracious reader, absolutely loved to read. So that was the track that I went to while I was in college, fell in love with my wife that uh, uh, we've been married now all these years, that uh, learned how to take all this information from a variety of sources, research that you would do into um, history or various um, literary movements and to be able to synthesize it down into a report that you could communicate back to your professor and get the grade that you were, you, you were looking for. <laughs> that ability to investigate and synthesize information down has really driven everything that I have done since. I've just been fortunate to have so many different places to find the information that I could provide to somebody who needed it. So I, I really think that was, from college, the, the main influence on what I do today. So I'm not sure that I understand the insurance world that well. And I'm sure that our audience, uh, at least many of them, don't understand the insurance world that well. So tell us a little bit about the claims side of that world. What, is, what does that look like as a claims adjuster or however you would kind of see that position investigator? What's that process look like from the time that someone says, hey, we have this claim to the point where someone writes a check? What's that look like? I think the, the basic component of that entire relationship is the contract, which is your policy. And the policy does specify what the company has accepted in risk in exchange for the premium that you've paid it. And there are a number of financial aspects that make the few dollars each of us pay sufficient to handle massive losses that you hope never happen to you but do happen throughout the industry. It's all driven, though, by the contract. And the contract itself 
is created so that we'll accept the risks that can be at least statistically based on past evidence, based on, based on your individual performance, based on where you live, can be used to determine what is likely to happen. And law of large numbers, there's so much information out there, it makes that possible. So the claims adjuster takes the contract and then they have to go out and look at the loss you've sustained. Whether that loss happens to be to your property, you've had a fire, you've had a flood, whatever, to liability, whether you actually did something or somebody alleged that you did something wrong, there's still a claim. Somebody is, is looking for compensation for what happened. Workers' compensation, you're injured, you say it's well on the job, you say it's well in the course and scope, you've asked for payment, now the company has to come out and take a look at that. The claims adjuster looks at the contract, then they go after the information. What is the claim? Who's making it? What information do they have together? And their job is to make a decision. Does the loss, what has happened to, drive this entire you know, file even being opened? Is that loss covered under the contract? If it isn't, then it's their responsibility to tell the policyholder why it isn't. If it is, it's their responsibility to handle it on the policyholder's behalf up to whatever the limit of coverage is. Interesting. <laughs> no, it's not. I know. Well, <laughs> no, I guess when I was coming through college, one of the uh, possibilities I thought through briefly was actuarial science and the idea of being able to look across a large average and decide whether you could insure something for X amount of dollars based on the averages doesn't initially sound that interesting, but millions, maybe billions of dollars are spent trying to figure out those numbers. Absolutely. It's, it's in the, the billions and trillions of dollars. It's, it's an industry that most of us on a day-to-day -day basis never think of, but where we'd be more likely to think of banking because we're thinking of where is our money going, who's investing it. We've seen it throughout the news about all of the massive losses that took place because there weren't sufficient safeguards in place and how is it going to impact us. Insurance, I really think, is a realm that most of us only deal with the, I've got to pay my darn premium hmm. or I can't get a car. I, I have to pay my premium or I can't buy a house. I really don't understand how it works. And then when it happens, we want to believe that it covers everything that could possibly come out of it um, when we have that loss that, that can eventually come along. But it really doesn't. It, it's limited to the contract that you're agreed upon. And a lot of us have abandoned, I think, that responsibility to know what it is exactly we're covered for. We just want to believe, yeah, I've got a policy. It covers everything because somebody told me so. It's kind of sad. So many things happen because somebody told me so rather than taking responsibility and finding out for yourself what it really means. So that actually comes back to diligence, looking at uh, all the details, which is, well, what is it they say? The devil is in the details. It's in there somewhere in that contract if we actually read it. It is. I, I, and I know over the years they have made attempts at revising policies to make them easier for people to understand. I, I fully recognize there's a lot of information in there. You do have to read it. You do have to try and understand it. And if you don't, you have to ask questions. But a lot of people feel they don't have the time. And that's, that's unfortunate. Well, at the time when you're paying, you know, whatever you're paying for your yearly insurance for your house, maybe... $500 or $1,000 or $2,000 or whatever it is for your house, and it's a couple hundred dollars a month. It doesn't seem like it's worth the 
you know hour or two to take the time to look at that until you something bad happens and you really need someone to uh, fork out two hundred thousand dollars to fix something and that's just it um, you think about how many people have massive losses um, it's substantially a much smaller population thankfully than all of the people who pay in the premium so you have to get a large enough group of people you have to get a focused enough acceptance of risk that actuarial science can forecast out and say okay this is the level that you need in order to be able to make some sort of a profit because a lot of these companies have shareholders and at the same time have sufficient funds to discharge the responsibilities that have been accepted through those contracts so I'm gonna take a left-hand turn on you because it's interesting that you're you're working in a business where most of us would probably start, you know, the, our eyes would roll back in our heads, and you know, the contract would, you know, start to, you know, make us twitch. But you've actually spent a lot of time out doing investigations, looking up the facts, kind of, you know, like a CSI kind of thing, maybe with, <laughs> all, and I don't know, maybe with as much technology or not. But your actual day to day actually seems like it looks a lot more interesting than it might initially seem. But there's enough of that personality back there that somehow you got interested in Renaissance fairs. <laughs> how, how did that happen exactly? You know, there's no, there's absolutely no direct connection between them. <laughs> and, if, and if anything, the insurance side has benefited from some of the Renaissance connections. Um, I had a, uh, a best friend in high school that uh, needed a ride to a Renaissance fair rehearsal. He was a servant with the court. And I had a car, and he said, you know, well, can you give me a ride? I said, sure. And I, I kind of got sucked into the whole thing from going to that one rehearsal. Not long after that, I met the woman who became my wife, and uh, that further drew me in. I think what I really loved, though, about the group of people that I had come in contact with, it was the only place in life, then or since, that I've found a group of people that were truly brought together by an interest in something rather than circumstance. In our group, there would be everything from a contract law attorney to a scrub nurse, okay, people who deal with complex, high-powered, high-paid professional jobs, to people who were uh, professional actors, people who wanted to be professional actors, which probably is a lot of, lot of people. To people that were, you know, working in just your typical, uh, they work at a car wash or they were working uh, at a warehouse. Um, this huge range of people and range of backgrounds. Um, you, you think of, of how many people have died over the centuries due to religious issues and conflicts. Within our group, we had, uh, you know, everything from Catholics to Jews to, to Wiccans to <laughs> it didn't matter. And there was never any judging. There was an absolute freedom to express who your character was that you developed from the time period. But you were never judged with what your background was, with who you knew or who you didn't know. That, to me, was an incredibly freeing thing. That you could put on a costume and become somebody but at the same time, you were constantly welcomed. Often what I've thought of is sort of the, you're allowed to play in the sandbox just because you're a kid. 
<laughs> that gave me the ability to go out and talk to total strangers and, and actually get the information as an investigator or with heads of corporations at the same time because we're all still the kids that, look, it's just a sandbox. We're all here together. Why can't I talk to you? Why can't we interact? There's really nothing stopping us unless you're about to put some prejudice on it of your own side. The Renaissance Fair gave me that freedom, that knowledge of myself and people, just who people are, that I could apply to the job that I'm in and could find out information as a result because I'm not afraid to ask the questions. So outside of the Ren Fair, do, do you find people who are inside continuing to communicate outside regardless of that or is that something or is it just a microcosm where where we where we set everything else aside and we we do that here but it's not the same outside or do you find that that expands beyond just that small community it does expand and it's not as small of a community as you may think it's it's quite large and you expand it out into civil war reenactors and you know <laughs> it's amazing um, we've been involved with with uh, people who are into regency um, events, Dickens, the entire Charles Dickens realm, Victorian England, it, it expands and expands. But yes, it has expanded outside of those. I, I see it in, in other ways where people who are all working for the same company, if it's what I consider to be a healthy company, they exchange those views without treating each other as less than. Like I say, I, I do have to go across the country and evaluate various companies, and part of that is a very subjective thing about whether or not they look like they're successful. The ones that I find are successful are the ones that will accept information from the lowliest person, you know, what you consider to be a job that's just pushing a broom, for example. It's amazing some of the incredible insights that they can provide into a better way to do things or something that's not working that everybody else does because, well, it's worked so far. This person will say, you know what, if you took that entire process out, brought in something like this, and they'll give you an idea, it would improve the company. It does expand, but it takes work. And I think it takes somebody who's, who's able to communicate those messages up and down the line, and that's what I, I strive to be. Interesting. You've already alluded to one place in which these two worlds have collided a little bit, in this ability to maybe uh, reach out to a total stranger or to bridge uh, certain social barriers, realizing that people are still just people. Are there any other areas where these two worlds have collided in your life? Mm -hmm. I mean, I do find there is a desire just in people to talk about themselves, to talk. And there's a fear almost of fulfilling that desire because they don't want to be recognized. They don't want to stand forward because it's dangerous. It's it's perceived as, as something that... They, they um, are afraid to speak their mind. Maybe it goes back to the early parts of our education where the guy who raises his hand is the brain, is making it difficult for the rest of us, this sort of denigration of, of knowledge, of, of not wanting to be that, not, not wanting to be, be picked on, and not wanting to take the chance to give the information and be wrong. You know, so many who don't want to be wrong. I think that through the Renaissance Fair and also just you know through my job in general where I found successful people are the people who are willing to say look I can make a mistake I can be wrong in what I'm doing 
but at least I'm going to try. I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to be afraid to, to hold up my hand. And sometimes they're just waiting for somebody to ask them, somebody to pick them, and say, okay, now it's your turn. You say something. So that's a, a nice segue here because that process of being willing to try something and being willing to be wrong connects to things that we believe in, this idea of tinkering and, you know, with your environment. I mean, specifically for us, it means, you know, like working with your hands and tinkering with something physically because it's easier to motivate, you know, a learning experience from that. But there are other areas in your life where this is also true. If you look back in your educational experience, where was it that you learned that tinkering ability to just go <laughs> out and try something and then it's okay, you know, we'll figure it out? When I was in the fourth grade, I was incredibly bored, incredibly bored. I, I had, I was so far ahead of everything and I had a terrific teacher who recognized that and said, well, why don't we teach you something else? something that nobody else is doing, and you can do it on the side. And I started learning French. <laughs> this is in fourth grade. <laughs> I know. It has no connection with anything, right? And I continued with that. And all the way through high school, and I, I did quite well, and I had another teacher in high school who said, well, we have these summer abroad programs. Why don't we try and get you involved, and you can you know, go to France for a period of time. And I turned it down at the time, even though my dad wanted, it was very supportive of it, um, my mom as well, that uh, uh, because it just seemed too big. So in the fourth grade, you know, beginning with, with learning French and then not going on the, the trip in uh, uh, high school, when I got to college, there was a exchange program, junior year abroad program. And by this point, I had decided I was going to go ahead and do it. And as things turned out back then, it was the best thing possible to do because the value of the franc was dropping drastically throughout the entire year I was there. They paid us back money. It was actually cheaper to go to school there than it was here in the U.S. But I was completely on my own. I was with a French family you know, that um, only spoke French. I, I think I correct that. Monsieur probably had five or six words of English, um, and none of them were curse words, which is rather fortunate. <laughs> and I actually had to communicate. I couldn't rely on what you would normally consider to be givens, uh, things that were, were just completely and totally understood in language. I had to actually struggle with the words because it's very different what you learn on a page versus what you have to put into play. Um, when, when you actually have to, to deal with people. So as far as tinkering, it's trying out the language and learning the different ways that it can express what you want it to express and realizing that a large part of communication is understanding what the other person is getting from you. I, I think the, the, the two words that go with that are perspicacity and perspicuity. Perspicacity <laughs> is my ability to understand you. Perspicuity is my ability to get you to understand me. Perspicacity, I think, is something that you can learn in a book. Perspicuity, I think, requires that ability to be in front of somebody and actually get them to understand what you have to say. So for you, the process of learning how to learn sort of started in fourth grade with this uh, pursuit of learning French mm -hmm. and I guess grew over time to the point in college where you went abroad and 
basically had to learn how to fit into a new culture with sort of new rules and eventually that turned into the ability to communicate and understand whether other people were actually getting what you were saying? Absolutely. And then it all does tie back. When I came back, they made me the French ambassador. Oh, in, in, in the <laughs> At the Renaissance Fair, oh, Fair exactly. <laughs> so uh, the character I, I portrayed, Bertrand de la Motte Fenelon, Baron de Salignac. Um, <laughs> I know it's a mouthful. I had more titles, trust me. They all did back then. It's, it's a funny thing. It was a true historic character that uh, was a an ambassador from the court of Charles the Ninth, and he actually got Elizabeth of England to sign an agreement to marry into France. As you well know from history, she never went through with it, but he, my character, actually did get her to do it. In any event, it gave me a platform at the fair to interact with people. It gave me sort of that, that costume, that role, that I could be free enough to discuss and disseminate information and, and engage other people. And with our group at the Renaissance Fair, you had to be out dealing with people. Otherwise, there was no point for you to be there. I mean, anybody could be Kodak stop number 13, have a little sign planted in front of you, have pictures taken with the person in the funny suit. It was interactive theater. It was, you know, live history. It was actually the Living History Center was the group that was, was working with things and putting this together. That emphasis is on live. We weren't a picture. We actually had to study the history in order to be able to interact with people believably as the characters. So where did you go to get that information at the time? Well, of course, this is all pre-internet, so you actually had to open books. You, you remember those, <laughs> the old paper things that have bindings on them? Oh, you had those. <laughs> Completely forgot. <laughs> exactly. <in> my mind. <laughs> and, and you explain that to kids these days. What do they know? That, uh, uh, yeah, absolutely, from books through um, interactions with other people that had studied the time period. Everybody would bring in and share their knowledge. We went through rather extensive periods of rehearsal that would involve just, okay, how did people react with the religion at the time? How did people react servant to lord or you know within the government itself? of Elizabethan England. And so it was shared information, shared resources, and I was going to college at the time, so I, I had uh, access to a terrific library and, and the systems that are connected with that. Learned an awful lot more since then about the time period um, that I wish I'd known then. But yeah, that, that, that's where you'd get the knowledge. The thing is, you had to go and find it. So we'll get down now to the left turn I usually take somewhere in the middle here. You had a different experience coming through your education, you know, in this Renfair experience you know, where you went to get your information. And now a lot of that information could be served up at the uh, few keystrokes, you know, into Google and up comes a bunch of information. With information being so freely available, what is, what is sort of the process of education or what is the meaning of an education when that information is so freely available? I think that the purpose of an education is to give you exposure to tools that you can use to communicate, to provide you the opportunity to access areas of knowledge that you may not have just from going from the couch to the refrigerator to the car to the movies, whatever. It's funny. I. Uh, one of the things I like to do, of course, in the modern age, now that we're not just limited to books, um, is to look up various quotes from people, because you have to put something on your Facebook page. You know? 
And there was um, one that I came across recently about the purpose of education. It was a, a gentleman by the name of Sidney Harris. He was a journalist that wrote uh, middle of the last century. It's hard to say that. <laughs> but in any event, and it was, and I'm probably going to horribly paraphrase this, most men are mirrors reflecting the mood and emotions of those around them. Few are windows who can shine light into the darkest corners where things tend to fester. The purpose of education is to turn the mirrors into windows. Wow. I think that's very true. I think the method that an education follows in order to shine the light where it needs to be is through communication. Because otherwise, how do you know what that dark thing is in the corner? Is it something that needs to be fixed? Is it something that could be used? Is it something that should be discarded? You need somebody to go to that corner and come back and say, this is what you need to do. And that's the communication you gather through education. I think that's a large part of what we try to do in the Tabletop Inventing podcast and at some, to some degree in what we uh, do in our other activities is this idea of shining a light on what's there and asking what do we really know about that. So we've been asking professionals from different uh, parts of the culture. We've had law, a lawyer. We've had, I think he's an engineer, actually a mathematician. And we've had uh, someone who, a couple of people who haven't, uh, had a formal four-year education who've gone out and done very well for themselves. We uh, have had college professors. And it's interesting to look at all these perspectives on you know, what is the purpose of an education because we're not all going to necessarily agree on what that is. And as we come to education, um, what are the kinds of lights that we need to kind of shine into here to you know, maybe to, to find out what's back in the dark corners? You know, what do, you know, what do we need to go investigate? Well, I mean, you, you look at the components of the, the uh, image itself. You need a light. You need a direction. Uh, you need a purpose. The light, hopefully, is the interest and the value of knowledge, um, something that I think has for too long been denigrated. I, I think that there has been a growing interest, or a growing value, I should say, in knowledge as we recognize that those who are, are best equipped to move our economy forward are what used to be the geeks and the nerds that everybody picked on, myself included, um, <laughs> and now they're celebrated. Geek and nerd used to be such negative terms. Oh yeah, I mean when I was a kid that was that was how it was. Right, I mean, you know, and geek, I'm sorry, none of the quote-unquote geeks that I know bite heads off of chickens, so I mean the, the terminology <laughs> has changed. <laughs> Although they may, I, I don't know what they do at home. <laughs> so that what I th I would think it would be the light in this image is valuing knowledge so that people will seek it, so that people will recognize it. Then you take the knowledge and you find the window, and the window, you know, the direction that you want that knowledge to go. The, that I think is driven by creativity. I think it's by the ability to take all of those little bits and pieces of information, look at a circumstance and think, should I be looking straight ahead or maybe I should look to the left, maybe I should look to the right, maybe I should look behind me because there's something coming up and it could be a bus. <laughs> and then the last thing of, is, you know, what are you focused at and what are you going to do with what you find with the light through the window? What, what is it that you're going to find there? 
that to me requires taking all of this experience, all of this knowledge, all of these various resources, and taking a look at it to figure out what it is. Maybe I'm coming up with too many of these old stories, but uh, there, there's that old idea of the uh, the blind the blind men trying to describe an elephant. Mm, yeah. And they each you know describe what they've encountered as the bits of the elephant. They have to put it all together to really get a picture of it. So it's not just my knowledge looking through my eyes into the corner to find out what it is. It's access to all the other people and their resources and their backgrounds and their biases to hopefully cancel out all the biases and actually put the facts together in a useful format that can be communicated back to everybody so we can make a decision as to what to do with it. That's an interesting idea to think about, and I guess at some level that's what we're trying to do. You know, if you think of education as this, you know, sort of dark attic, you know, we're kind of putting windows all around the attic, you know, inviting people to come in and give their perspective. You know, we're turning this almost into a, a greenhouse sort of thing where there's windows everywhere. You know, maybe if we do that, we can really see what's in the attic. We can really find out what's going on in here and, you know, rearrange it, clean it up, you know, find, you know, where the, the really dark corners are. And we might find some great jewels in our education system. We didn't even know we're there, but we have to look. Well, and, and that's absolutely it. it. It's funny. You will look at a book when you're a kid, and you'll read this book, and it could be something you absolutely struggled through, and you hated it. Absolutely hated it, because it had no connection to you. There was no interest in it. Then once you have more experience, you can take a look at the same book, and you can find it's this fantastic story that is engrossing. It's engaging. It, it draws you in to the characters. And you love who the people are. And it, it seems to make you feel better or worse or you know whatever. But it makes you feel. That's been my personal definition of what's art. Nobody can agree on what's art. As far as I'm concerned, if it makes you happy, it makes you sad. It makes you, you know, joy, it brings you joy. It makes you sad. It makes you angry. It makes you react. Then it's art. Because otherwise, it's just something that's on the wall, <laughs> you know. <laughs> if you can have the exposure to art, have the exposure to um, all of these ideas, you can actually make a decision. You, you're talking about putting all the windows around the attic mm -hmm. in order to shine on the light. Well, what if it turns out that you're looking in the wrong place after all? You should have been looking outside of the attic instead of in it. <laughs> Right? That's true. Um, or from my perspective of the insurance world, what if all those windows has just increased the likelihood you're going to have a flood because a seal is going to break on one of those <laughs> windows and all the rain comes pouring in? Again, that old, that old analogy that people say, well, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? Some people wonder, where did the glass come from? I wonder, why do I have to be the one to wash the glass? <laughs> it's just different perspectives. And, and hopefully through knowledge and exposure to education and, and all the things that it brings, you, ha you are able to, to make those decisions and to communicate them to others. Well, I think we'll just stop right there. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for taking time to uh, share your thoughts with us. If uh, people are interested in uh, connecting with you, or is there a preferred mode for our audience to uh, maybe engage with uh, your thinking or your ideas? Well, I would suppose if they, they 
really desperately want to get in touch with me, they could let you know. <laughs> um, well, we'll I'm, certainly pass that along. I'm, I'm one of those people that recognizes that um, the more personal information that's out there um, isn't always necessarily a good thing, <laughs> but uh, you want to hope it is. So how about I use you for my filter? Uh, you go ahead and use us as a filter. <laughs> we, we'd love to do that. We, we enjoy getting our audience to engage with us, and we'd be more than happy to connect uh, you and the audience if, if they need to do that. Thank you so much for taking time in the afternoon to uh, discuss education, the purpose of an education. Oh, thank you. This is a, a, an important subject that I think everybody needs to, to recognize and value. And, and hopefully this is one more step in getting people to do that. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Thank you. And now, today's great inventor secret, details. Have you ever heard the phrase, the devil is in the details? Yeah, me too. For years, I lived by this mantra as a way to avoid complicated things. <laughs> then I got married, had kids, and got interested in engineering things. The truth is, there is no such thing as simple, except in the thought experiments done by physicists like me. Take, for instance, the humble circle. Circles are everywhere. Marbles, wheels, knobs, plates, eyes. They're on your iPhone, magazines, water droplets in free fall, oranges, apples, plums, bubbles, basketballs, baseballs, volleyballs, trackballs and old computer mice, holes drilled with a drill bit, logos, gas gauges, even the planet to which we are currently fastened by the force of gravity. Circles rule. They seem simple, but then there's trigonometry. Wait, wait, wait! Steve, you were just talking about circles, and then you jumped to triangles. Which one is it? <laughs> Actually, both. In trigonometry, we use a little thing called the unit circle, which governs just about everything in trig. It is a simple circle, but by defining the details carefully, this humble circle can be used to describe how much of how we use right triangles. If you're skeptical, Check out the show notes for a great video. Either way, the unit circle connects sines, cosines, and tangents. But wait, there are cotangents, secants, cosecants, and, well, maybe you need to know some of the details to catch the breathtaking symmetry and beauty. I could go on, but instead, let me tell you a short story about one of my favorite professors, Dr. Richard. Now, Dr. Richard was the no-nonsense kind of math professor. In our classes, we used to enjoy asking rabbit trail questions, and they were sure to reduce the amount of homework for the day. Now, this worked in most of our classes, but not with Dr. Richard. I remember vividly one time we asked a rabbit trail question, and I can't remember exactly who it was that asked the question, but I will never forget the reply. Dr. Richard was writing on the board, and he paused briefly with a half turn, thought for about a nanosecond, and said, ah, I'm not going to talk about that today, and then proceeded to write the rest of the equation he had been on before the question. Ha! <laughs> it was awesome! I still laugh when I think about it. However, my favorite story about Dr. Richard was when I was taking a real analysis class from him and found out just how strange and topologically bizarre math can be. We were working our way through a boring set boundary proof. We'd been talking about weird sets for a couple of days and why defining the details of the boundary mattered so much. 
Honestly, I was about to fall asleep in class when Dr. Richard wrote the three dots. Now, for the non-math folks, the three dots are extremely significant. You have to see the show notes if you're curious. Instantly, everyone in class looked up at the board because we knew that we couldn't afford to miss what came next without jeopardizing our homework scores. He paused for a second, as if relishing some sort of a private moment. Then he blithely wrote the fundamental theorem of calculus, and every student in that class stared slack-jawed at the board. We could not have been more stunned if he had announced that aliens had invaded Washington, D.C. Now, if I wrote the same proof in the show notes that Dr. Richard wrote, you would probably start drooling and falling asleep, even after I wrote the punchline. Why? Because the details matter. And the details are what make life interesting. And, you know, quite frankly, many of you probably don't know the details. And it's the details that make stuff so fun. Now, for you, the interesting details may be about the psychology of child development or the precision required to send a man to the moon or proper soil composition to grow rutabagas. To you, those details may matter. And if you ever want to be great at inventing in your field, you must get intimately acquainted with those important details. Don't sweep them under the rug. Pull them out, clean them up, and show them off for the rest of us to see. Now perhaps you won't need to become an expert on trigonometry to become an inventor or delve into the depths of tolerance considerations in engineering, but I guarantee you that every great inventor learns the details of their particular trade. If you don't, you simply can't become a great inventor. If you aspire to be great, don't despair. Details are actually fun once they are connected to your passion. In fact, you might even find it difficult to restrain the temptation to wax eloquent about circles like I did earlier, or engineering tolerances, or arcane underlying linguistic connections between the Hungarian language and the Finnish language, which are both members of the Finno-Ugric branch of the Uralic languages. So, whatever the case, find something that you love, then dive deep. The details will be breathtaking. Have you been enjoying the Tabletop Inventing Podcast? Have comments or questions you'd like us to address? Contact us, and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com slash podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students? Mm-hmm.